Welcome to the first episode of the In Conversation with eClinical Medicine podcast. I'm Francesca Bezutil, Senior Editor at the eClinical Medicine. And I'm Derek Kinane. Each month we'll be interviewing the author of a paper published in our journal, giving an opportunity to provide a deeper discussion of their research. We're here today with Dr. Lauren Nephew, whose commentary on systemic racism and COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy was published in eClinical Medicine earlier this year. The commentary is part of our virtual collection on racial inequity in health, the first part of which was launched in July and which aims to outline and discuss racial and ethnic inequality across global settings. Dr. Nephew is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Indiana University School of Medicine. Her research interests include understanding barriers to liver transplantation for vulnerable populations and disparities in care of patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. Dr. Nephew, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our listeners might be interested to hear a little bit more about your career and how you came to be active in this field. Are there any inspirations in particular that led you down this path? Um, Yeah, there are. So uh, my passion for complex medical issues and uh, complex social issues where they meet health disparities and social justice, I think really stem from my upbringing and experiences I've had with my own family. Um, so my mom is one of 10 children. Uh, she grew up in a uh, segregated town in Southern Ohio. And while she uh, tells me there was always food on the table, um, for all intent and purposes, they were poor. And um, they lived in a poor neighborhood and the schools that she went to had very few resources and it was a challenge to really excel in that environment. Um, Somehow she managed to go on to college and she got her bachelor's degree and she uh, went into the workforce. And I remember um, as a young girl just having her tell me about her experience in the workforce with really just overt racism um, and the difficulties she had with moving up the ladder to the point where ultimately um, she developed a stress-induced cardiomyopathy um, when I was a teenager, a pretty significant heart failure, and the doctors could not find any reason for it. Um, and the more I began to think about and learn about heart failure, the more I realized that stress-induced heart failure can be a result of just work-related stress and and, and racism, quite frankly. Um, and so really her experience with the impact of social determinants, her upbringing, um, overt racism on her health, um, and then subsequently on my health, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure when I was 22 years old. Um, and so I began to want to understand how does where you live, where you work, structural racism, inequality, how does that influence the health of individuals in these environments? Um, And so I became a transplant hepatologist, which may sound very kind of specific um, and narrow for someone who studies health disparities and health inequity, but people with cirrhosis have um, not only really severe disease, but they also have complex social situations. So many people live in uh, with cirrhosis, um, have a high prevalence of poverty, substance use, alcohol use. And when you compound that with a very complex disease that requires very advanced care, you really see disparities um, really emerge. And so I said, this is a place where I can identify disparities and really potentially be a benefit to a population. And so my upbringing, my own personal experiences with lack and social need and structural inequity kind of drove me to want to study this in this particular population. 
really interesting to hear about your background as well on that. So maybe just to jump ahead, actually, to kind of link things in a more sort of structured way. Can you describe your work more specifically in, on disparities in liver transplantation? I'm interested in barriers to access to transplant and to really complex um, liver disease therapies, um, whether that might be ablation for liver cancer or transplant for end-stage liver disease. In liver disease, you know, vulnerable populations, that definition varies depending on what disease you're talking about. So in liver disease, vulnerable populations have really been women, um, racial and ethnic minorities, people who are underinsured, um, the poor. Um, and there's also been some disparities in identified by geography. And so I'm really interested in understanding how these populations um, might better uh, achieve health equity um, and get to transplant and other therapies that they need. Um, specifically, um, I've looked at gender. It's been demonstrated for or a decade ago that there were gender disparities in transplantation. And we looked recently or fairly recently in 2017 to see whether or not these disparities st were still there. I um, mean, they are. Um, and that was surprising to me that really we had not made progress after these were identified in early 2000, 2005 or so. So we looked at the factors that could be contributing to gender disparities. We were interested in understanding allocation factors and how organs are declined and refused by providers on patients' behalf. And, and I'm hopeful that our work and other work in that area will move um, disparities and allocation for women forward. In terms of other vulnerable populations that I've been interested in exploring, um, um, those who are underinsured. And so in the United States, the Affordable Care Act um, really opened up potential to really make some advances in healthcare disparities. And so I was interested in how the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion might have improved access to transplant for vulnerable groups. Um, and so we looked at whether or not Black patients uh, were waitlisted more after Medicaid expansion in states that chose to expand Medicaid. Surprisingly, though, we found that Black patients were actually less likely to be listed for transplant in states that expanded Medicaid. And that was surprising to us. So I, I thought that having more access would mean that more patients would be able to get on the wait list. And when we delved into that a bit deeper, um, we found that uh, if we remove the patients who have hepatitis C, which is the, the most common reason that Black patients are listed for transplant, um, that that trend was no longer there, that there was not a decrease in waitlisting, that waitlisting was stable if not increasing. And so we think that the reason um, that that trend was downtrending was because actually Black patients who live in states that expanded Medicaid are getting hep C treatment and they don't need to be listed for transplant anymore. Um, and so uh, that Medicaid expansion is benefiting um, this group and in a way that's a bit different than we initially hypothesized. Um, and more recently, I'll say finally, I've been interested in exploring neighborhood and how where you live impacts your liver disease outcome. Um, this has been established more in diseases like diabetes and hypertension in neighborhood is important, um, but less so um, in some liver diseases. And so we recently looked at mortality from a liver disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis um, and the impact that neighborhood had on uh, that mortality by race. And we saw that neighborhood socioeconomic status was a large driver of mortality for Black patients. And so I'm interested in looking in that and not only that population, 
depression, but in patients with liver cancer, not just to name it, because I think intuitively we know that neighborhood and where you live impacts your outcome. Um, But if we can prove that and then identify these patients early before they get into the healthcare system, then we might be able to act on those disparities and come up with navigation plans before they develop problems. Um, My hope is that um, this work can move disparities out of just description into acting, whether that's in healthcare policy and and moving towards opening up Medicaid in other states, or whether that's um, with identifying neighborhoods that need to be targeted, particularly for intervention. So you mentioned disparities in liver transplantation and liver disease. Um, So more generally, uh, what are health and healthcare disparities and why are these important? That's a good question, because I think if we're going to move towards eliminating health disparities, it's important that we are all on the same page about what a health disparity is. And so I think what a health disparity is not is not just simply a health difference. And so it's not just that groups um, have different outcomes and it just is the way it is. Health disparity is that it, if it's a difference that affects a socially disadvantaged group. And these differences are systematic and plausibly avoidable. And so I think that's an important distinction from just any health difference that you may see between any populations if you're a researcher. These are are distinct. When we are speaking of health disparities, we are speaking about disadvantaged groups and we're speaking about differences that are plausibly avoidable and systematic um, and that are often the result of unintentional or intentional racism and driven by structural inequity. Um, and so these are our health differences that are systematic um, and therefore potentially modifiable. Um, so, yeah, so over the past few months, the coronavirus pandemic has exacerbated um, these disparities. Um, so this is something that you touch upon in your commentary published in eClinical Medicine earlier this year. Um, can you talk us through your experience throughout the pandemic, both from a personal perspective, but also as a clinician in your daily practice? Yeah, it's it's been a tough time um, for um, clinicians, for minority groups, for people who study health disparities um, during this COVID pandemic. It's been tough for everybody, but particularly as a clinician and as you watch the death disproportionately impact certain groups. You know, it's just um, Latinx groups, Black groups, Indigenous groups. It's been difficult and challenging to watch, um, to see our frontline workers. Um, So our bus drivers, waitresses, housekeeping staff and people be disproportionately impacted. People in our families and people that we know and we care about. Um, I think as someone who studies disparities, it's not as if these disparities were new to me. Um, However, this is the first time in my lifetime that they've been displayed on such a large scale in such a short amount of time. And so it's been painful to to see the results of decades of structural inequity just laid bare like this. Quite frankly, it's been tough. Um, When the vaccine became available um, back in the fall, um, I felt some hope that, you know, we can get over this, that we can, um, vulnerable populations and communities that I care so much about uh, might be able to to move past this. And I wanted to do everything that I could to try to help the cause and help people to understand the vaccine, especially given my own initial concerns about the vaccine, which is why I, I wrote the commentary that um, was published in eClinical Medicine. Um, it was a bit out of kind of my area per se um, of transplant. But I think when we're thinking about 
disparities, really those systematic structural inequities and and systematic racism really are um, impact all areas of care. And so um, I thought it was an opportunity for me to share where I was with the vaccine and to help potentially move people forward. It gets to kind of points which we don't necessarily talk about in a sort of clinical situation, um, the commentary I'm talking about specifically. Um, that's why I, I think it was one of the great additions to the, the collection because it really kind of helped us to put in context the personal struggle. And I think a lot of that is not well understood by healthcare. It's not very clearly understood. Continuing with the sort of the theme of vaccine hesitancy, um, what sort of approaches are you taking in terms of addressing vaccine hesitancy? Um, and Or what would you like to see initiated um, to increase vaccine uptake among racial and ethnic minority communities? I think at this point, we are at a, a ground effort or it's a ground game. There was a time when kind of big messages on TV from Fauci and the CDC, I think we're, we're making headway. But I think now it is each individual community member acting in their individual communities to help one person by one person um, to understand a vaccine and to move forward. Um, and I think that uh, we need to empower um, members of these communities to be able to feel comfortable to do that, to be able to go out in their community, go door to door, inbox to inbox, um, as if it was a grassroots political campaign, honestly, um, to try to move people and move the needle. Um, I think that people want to hear from people that look like them, and whether that's in rural communities or whether that's in minority communities. They want to hear from the people who they go to the grocery store with, the people that they go to church with. They want to hear from those people why it's important for my community to get the vaccine, why they got the vaccine, why they did okay, why they want their children to be vaccinated. So I think that messages from healthcare providers are certainly important. And, and everyone wants to be able to, as a physician, you want to be able to influence your patients. But I think now the people who are left at this point need to hear from their peers and from their community. And I think we also need our uh, healthcare leaders to stand up and be bold. We need the CDC um, and governors um, to do what is needed to be done, um, what is in the best public health interest, whether it's comfortable, um, whether it's um, popular or not. Um, and I think if they can be bold and do what's right in the face of what may be uncomfortable, that individuals may feel emboldened to be able to challenge their neighbor, um, to be able to challenge and talk to people at the grocery store, um, and to be able to get into uncomfortable spaces. But if our own leaders aren't willing um, to do what's uncomfortable, to tell us what needs to be done, even though folks don't want to do it, to close things if they need to be closed, to put masks back on if they need to be put back on, then it's hard to ask the individual to do that. So I think we need leadership, boldness to trickle down from the top so that people can be empowered to do that on an individual level in their communities. So are you kind of sort of breaching on the idea of mandates and, and that sort of, sort of idea or just kind of more forceful language from leaders? I think when you're in a public health crisis that some mandates are reasonable. I don't know about a vaccine mandate, but I think, you know, 
children who are unvaccinated going back to school without a mask seems unreasonable to me. It's hard for me to imagine why that would make any public health sense. Um, and so I think that we have to have common sense legislation. And, and, and that may be uncomfortable for, for a minority, but I think the majority of people would understand why we want to keep our children safe. And so um, I think that there could be some more forceful language. And I think there are some places where mandates might be appropriate, even mandates for vaccines for certain um, populations um, like healthcare workers. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, without tailored action, inequalities are maintained and reinforced. So what do you think are the key initiatives that are needed to address disparities? I think health disparities more generally can be, you know, um, addressed. There's going to be a number of things that are needed to address health disparities. A couple of things that I think will be helpful is really improving healthcare provider disparity and social determinant literacy. Um, I think that a lot of providers um, spend a lot of time learning about the disease. What stage is the cancer? What size is the tumor? What medicines should I use for the tumor? What CT scan do you need? But few providers are really taught and understand it is as important to learn about the patient. Where does the patient live? Do they have transportation to get to that appointment for that treatment? Do they work night shift and so they often forget to take their medications because of that? Do they have insurance? Um, do they have childcare? Do they need a parking voucher? Just as important as it is to understand the tumor stage, it's also as important to understand the patient. And if we're going to affect the morbidity and mortality of our patients and to overcome disparities, we have to recognize that because of a lot of complex policy issues that have gone on for decades, patients of color and vulnerable populations have a high burden of social need. And you need to recognize that need so that you can come up with a care plan that makes sense and is tailored to that patient so that you can build trust. So the patient understands and you understand why they may not do exactly what you want them to do. And when that trust and communication is built, then you get better adherence. And when you get better adherence, you get better outcome. So I think one of the things we need to do is just improve provider literacy around these issues. I think the other thing we need to do, which may be even more challenging, is to invest in health equity. Health equity is, is not going to be um, cheap. Um, it's not about just giving access to everybody. If you can go into a hospital, then then great, then you've got access. That doesn't mean that you're going to have a good health outcome because health equity means that you are going to remove barriers to getting to that hospital and create bridges to get to that hospital. And removing barriers and creating bridges costs money. And so we need policymakers, payers, and communities to really invest in equity, not because it's the right thing to do. I would love for them to do it because it's the right thing to do, <laughs> um, but because in the long run, it's going to be cost effective. If you can keep people out of the hospital, Hospital, if you can reduce hospital readmissions, if you can make people healthy, especially as we move to a value-based care system here in the United States as opposed to a fee-for-service, people's long-term health outcomes are going to matter. And so um, I think that payers and higher-up hospital systems need to put money in health equity. Finally, I think we needed a commitment to inclusion, including uh, racial minorities um, and women in research studies. Um, I think if we're going to improve health disparities, then we need to have research studies that 
actually study populations that look like the populations who will be provided the intervention. It's important that we know how side effects will look in this population. It's important that we know how uptake will happen in these different populations. And so I think a commitment to clinical trial diversity, even observational trials, not just interventional trials, I think are important. So I think um, health literacy uh, or or provider literacy around disparities putting some money on health equity um, and making sure our clinical trials are diverse are some good steps towards improving health disparities. Certainly there's much more, but those are some things that I think are important. Some really clear messages out there, especially one where it's um, don't do it because it's the right thing to do, do it because it's the, the cost effective thing to do. I think that would actually I speak would love to a lot for, of I would love for everybody to do it because it was the, their moral <laughs> imperative, but I, we have to be realistic about why people are in business and, and why what motivates payers to do what they do. Um, and I think in the long run, health equity is cost effective. Absolutely. Um, so a final question, sort of grand question, um, but what do we still need to learn about reducing health disparities? There's a lot to, to learn um, and I am new to this field, but from my perspective, I would say that we need to understand interventions. We have done a lot of descriptive work around who has health disparities, um, but now we need to learn more about how interventions work. There's good evidence that multifaceted interventions work well for disparities. That means not just acting on one place in the healthcare pathway, but multiple places, perhaps doing an educational intervention coupled with a navigator, coupled with a medication care plan. And But we don't know, um, do you need all levels? Is one or two or three levels needed? Um, is it incrementally better? Um, so I think um, we need more information around interventions, multifaceted interventions, and the incremental benefit of having each layer of a multifaceted intervention. And then we need more information about how to scale these interventions up. There's been many interventions that are happening in silos around the country that are innovative and creative. How do we scale those up so that they can be used in multiple places around the country? And how do we make sure they're sustainable, that they're not just a grant funded this, I did it and now it's over. Um, So how do we get buy-in from health systems and payers to sustain these um, interventions that we're studying? And I think one way we get buy-in is by showing cost effectiveness. Um, And so we need large scale studies that show, even if it's just through modeling, what would it look like if we had an intervention that reduced hospital admissions for minority populations by 2%? For a large payer, that may be significant. And so I think cost effectiveness analysis um, can also help to move payers towards uh, investing in health equity. Finally, I think there is probably one area where there's probably multiple areas, but I'll say there is one area I can think of where more description is probably needed. And there's some and that there's some understudy groups. Um, Immigrants in the United States have been understudied. American Indians, the LGBTQ um, population has been understudied. Um, And so I think there's descriptive work still to be done for some populations because it's hard to make an intervention if you haven't really even described what the needs of those communities are. Yeah, that's, that's that's really very clear, and I mean, there's, it's really interesting that I mean, for us as as editors, 
lots of times that we see papers which are very descriptive of communities, um, but they don't really focus necessarily on one specific community. And we do sometimes wonder what's the direct way that we kind of want to address this as a journal. Um, are we looking for papers which kind of focus specifically on one community? Um, or are we looking at the sort of bridging point between several communities? Like you mentioned, the, the LGBT community, where the intersection between those communities and race um, and different communities of race uh, intercept um, is a really interesting and really useful information to have. So thank you so much for the time you've given us today. It's been a really um, interesting study, uh, sorry, discussion. And yeah, look forward to seeing more about your, um, your, your future research that you're working on um, in this area. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a good discussion. So the second port of eClinical Medicine's Racial Inequity in Health Collection will launch in early 2022. We are inviting the submission of original research papers addressing racial inequities across all areas of medicine. The deadline for submission is September 30th, 2021. For further information, visit our website or contact the editorial team. And thank you again, Dr. Nephew. Um, thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With eClinical Medicine wherever you usually get your podcasts.